0: This morning, I'm going to finish the series I began, believe it or not, 10 weeks ago, Created with Intent. The idea is that when God created humankind, he had something in mind. He had an intent, and that intent forms his purpose for us. It establishes the nature of a good life, how to live a good life, what God intends for us as human beings. As we conform to that, we find we walk under his favor and blessings. If we, if we turn against that, well, we find ourselves walking, walking against the wind, swimming against the current. Life gets very, very hard. And so we've been dealing with all the issues surrounding God's creation, our fall into sin, all the complicating factors that make life difficult. So this morning, I come to the end of the series dealing with perhaps the most vexing question of all for many sitting in this room, and that is something that's called transgenderism. And the question is, how does all that fit in with what the Bible has to say? Now, I have a lot to say, far more than I can say this morning, somewhat like last week. So I'm actually going to preach four separate micro sermons. If you don't like the first one, believe me, the second will be better. If you don't like the second, well, hopefully the third will be better. If you don't like the third, it just goes all the way down. I need to move quickly. Let's begin with two scriptures. Genesis 1, which we have turned to on multiple occasions. Genesis 1, verse 27 God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. And then over in chapter three, starting in verse one, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, sermon number one, I have to finish up from last week. I talked about homosexuality last week and touched on a number of different issues, but running out of time, I wasn't able to highlight some resources that I wanted to share with you. One I did share just in the course of the sermon, and that is a book by Wesley Hill, who's a professor of New Testament at Western Theological Seminary, a committed believer, and a man who deals every day of his life with same-sex attraction, has his whole life. But God has worked in his life, and he is a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. I found that book to be encouraging to me with my own struggles in life, and it is a wonderful book for anyone here who deals with same-sex attraction. I think you'll see when you read this book, you are not alone, and that there is hope in Jesus Christ. Now, I wanted other resources So I reached out to our own Perry Glanzer. You may not know this, even if you know Perry, but he is something of an expert in um, character and moral development and virtue. He's written on it voluminously. I reached out to him and asked him about a particular book by Mark Yarhouse. And he said, well, let me send Mark an email and find out what he thinks, You know, some people are on the Mount Olympus of academic world, and they know the others on the peak of Mount Olympus, and they communicate. So he sent an email to Mark, who is uh, one of the leading experts in gender identity and issues surrounding that. He teaches at Wheaton University. I think it's university. For years, it was Wheaton College, but I think they're university now. And he mentioned one book called Costly Obedience. Now, this book is interesting because it's focused around um, research done on 300 Christians who deal with same-sex attraction. These are 300 people who are following Jesus Christ, and they have had to work through some of those issues that we talked about last week in their own discipleship. I think it's important because without discounting at all the fact that God has no doubt delivered some people from any attraction to the same sex at all, for many, that is not the reality. And in the case of these 300 believers, we are reminded that the gospel is good news for everyone, and we're reminded that we must all take up our cross and follow Jesus, and we're reminded that the gospel is not not, you must be heterosexual. The gospel is you must be faithful to Jesus, starting right where you are, faithful to Jesus, and to follow him in obedience, just like I tried to talk about last week. So, that's another resource that's extremely helpful, I think, to those who themselves are dealing with same-sex attraction. The final resource, also uh, Mark Yarhouse is a co-author of, is um, When Children Come Out. It's a book that gives guidance to parents when their child comes to them and says, I'm gay, or Also, the book deals with when they say, I think I'm the opposite sex. I think I'm transgender. How do you as a Christian parent or grandparent deal with those sorts of issues? It is complicated. Anyone who thinks it's simple and easy, they don't know what they're talking about. It is complicated. And when confronted with such a situation, it requires us who are parents or grandparents, to deepen our faith, to have the wisdom of God, to have the love of Jesus, and to humbly work through the the issues that, that come as a result. This is a very helpful book in part because it deals... Uh, with information derived from many parents who've gone through this. So if, you find, if you're going through that, this is a book I think that would help you. It is not preachy. It does not you know, give you rigid guidelines but gives you a lot to think about and I think is very, very helpful. One particularly helpful thing <laughs> is it reminds us just how difficult it is for the child who comes out. It's important to remember that. And it's important to remember how painful it can be for them when they feel your rejection. So these are issues we have to deal with, and that's Sermon 1. You've got three resources that I'd recommend to you. And if you want more, just put Mark Yarhouse in the Internet, and you'll find other things that he's written. And from there, it just works like a web all the way out. You can find many other very, very good resources. Sermon 2. I want to talk about what is frequently called gender dysphoria. That is discomfort and distress at one's gender. Someone who is male feels like they're really female on the inside and their body doesn't line up with what they feel they ought to be. Or someone is a, girl, a female and feels the opposite. And there are Not a lot of people, if you talk about percentages, but if you talk about total numbers, there are quite a few people who find themselves in that very distressing, difficult situation. Now, this is an experience that's been, you know, goes way back. It's not like it's something new, and it's been known for a long, long time. In fact, it used to be called gender identity disorder, and the name was changed in order to try to destigmatize um, the the issue for people who are dealing with it. What happens is that sometimes, from very on in childhood, sometimes once puberty hits, but in the most serious cases, early on in childhood, there is this sense, as I've said, that by a child that I am not in the appropriate body. I I, I look like I'm a boy and I feel like I am a girl. And so, the question becomes, what exactly are we to do with this? What are we to make of this? And in the history, in, when I say the history, in the last, you know, decades, this has been a, a phenomenon that has been much discussed, but what has changed in the last number of years is sort of the, the mood of the culture. In the past, the sense was, here is someone who's dealing with a mental illness And they're in great distress, and some people would argue that some sort of medical procedure needs to be done to reduce their distress. It's just an act of mercy. It's not a concession that you really are female in a male body or male in a female body. It was just a concession. What's changed is our culture that that pins identity on our own interior feelings, What I think and feel and desire, that defines me. Psychology trumps biology. And with that shift, now it's become a different issue. It's become finding your true self. You are truly female, though here you are in a male body. You are truly male, though here you are in a female body. And interventions are done in order to try to correct that. Now, many years ago, many years ago, I had a young man come see me, and he was emotionally distraught. You could see it just boiling underneath the surface, and finally, when he started telling me his story, he just burst out into tears. I mean, he was inconsolable. He was so upset. Now I'm going to tell you what upset him. You're going to be tempted to laugh because it seems so trivial, but this is this is not a funny story. It really is not. He was upset because his top lip was so large. His top lip wasn't large. <laughs> there are women today who pay big bucks for lips like this guy <laughs> had. It wasn't large but he had something that's known as body dysmorphic disorder. I didn't know the name back then, and he didn't know that's what he had, but it was obvious he was dealing with a a mental illness. He could not be consoled. I encouraged him to see a therapist that I trusted, that I knew dealt with some issues like this. But no, he wanted the defect corrected. He was so distressed by it. And so he went and had a plastic surgery. Re- surgeon reduced the size of his lip, and he was ecstatic for a little while. He was back to see me sometime after that. He was still distressed. Now his concern had moved to other parts of his face, and, and he realized this was never going to end. And I insisted you need to go see this therapist, which he did which he did. Now, I didn't, I didn't look down on him for having that problem. I wasn't condemning him. I wasn't dismissing him. I wasn't disrespecting him. He had a problem. I have problems. We all have problems, and I was encouraging him to seek help, just like I did when a, the first woman I ever talked to who had anorexia, She was thin as thin could be, but she was convinced she was fat. When she saw herself in a mirror, she was so overweight she could hardly stand it. She knew she wasn't here, but she felt that way. She felt that way. So what am I to do? Am I to say, well, you know what? You can fix that. You need liposuction. You think liposuction is going to help her? Of course not. Of course not. I encourage her once again to see a therapist who worked in with cognitive behavioral therapy, and, and she was helped. Her faith actually deepened, and she showed a lot of courage to work through those issues. Going to get liposuction would not be a courageous act. It would be a surrender to the mental illness. The courageous act was th- seeking therapy. Did you know that there is a, there is a mental illness known as, as body integrity disorder? I first came across it some years ago reading an article in the Atlantic, hardly a conservative journal. Body identity disorder refers to a mental illness some people suffer from that makes them want to 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 do away with certain limbs or perhaps their eyes. They they want to be handicapped. In fact, they feel the need to somehow change their body to conform to who they are. There are many stories of this. This, this is not unknown. Um, sometimes even professional people have actually gone so far as to attempt to amputate their own legs. And here's what, what they've said. From childhood, they felt deeply and strongly and persistently that these legs were not part of them, not properly so. They envisioned themselves living in a wheelchair. And so they seek amputation. Some have sought to have their vision taken away in order to find peace. In the 2000s, a man named Robert Smith, a surgeon in the UK, actually amputated the legs of two individuals in order to try to remove their distress. That was controversial. But there have been people who have literally cut off their own limbs and almost died from it. And this is something that they feel from youth has to be dealt with. Now, someone... Seeking to cut off their own limbs. If you're interested in the article, I can actually send you a copy of it and you'll read stories. Someone doing that, that takes some nerve, but I wouldn't call that courage. I would call that the distress and desperation of mental illness. And what's needed there is therapy. And there is no insult to that person to say so. It is no disrespect. It is not a lack of love. It is not hate. It is respect to say, no, your identity is not of, some, of, a, of someone without legs. This is something that's troubling you. Interestingly, there's been some research that seems to suggest a portion of the brain that, that functions a little differently in people of these, uh, with this particular malady. So does that mean we say, oh, well, you know, it's just the way they're born? No, we try to help them. Now, some people from very early in their lives are convinced, this is not the right body for me. And it is no disrespect. It is no put down to say that they need therapy. They need love and compassion and therapy. They do not need to have their bodies surgically changed to correspond to their troubled mind. That is not a put-down. That is just the way life is in a fallen world. Do you see the point I'm making? Now, there's a special consideration, that is with children. So, today, the number of children who are expressing some sort of gender dysphoria just exploded. Interestingly, it used to be young boys, two to one. Now it's girls, three to one. And the best research suggests there's a lot of social contagion going on. But with the children, if you, if you read about so-called gender-affirming care, here's the standard of care. The child who feels this distress should, starts cross-dressing and starts, uh, is, receives a new name, and begins acting as the other gender. And then, before puberty hits, receives puberty blockers so that secondary sex uh, uh, characteristics won't develop and add to their distress. At around 16, if they decide that it needs to continue, they'll receive cross-sex hormones, and then subsequent to that, if they choose, surgery. Now, here's the thing. 80 to 95% of children who express some level of gender dysphoria, mild or strong, 80 to 95% by the time they reach young adulthood, it all resolves itself. 80 to 95%. Many activists have tried to undo that fact. They've tried to contest it, but the research is quite strong. And and so But once once you start them on the track of dressing and acting like the other sex and giving uh, uh, puberty blockers, almost none, almost none desist until going much further in the process. That tells you something. Children are being helped along this path rather than being helped to make peace with their actual bodies, and that is not a good thing. Parents often feel pushed in a corner because they're told, well, I know you you want to have a boy, but you can have a dead boy or you can have a girl. They're warned, suicide, if, if if you don't go along with this. And there's no doubt that children with gender dysphoria are much higher much higher risk of suicide than those who are not. Here's the thing, though. Studies have found that after the effort at transition, suicide remains as large a problem as it was before. So this is a very distressing situation. In fact, in, in the UK, in Sweden, and in some other European countries, they have repudiated this whole gender-affirming care process and with children. And they say, we need to begin conservatively. We need to start with therapy. And the reason they do that is because the results have not borne out. But in the United States, this is still what's being pushed. And there are clinics, they've popped up everywhere now, that are making millions and tens of millions of dollars off of this. Last figures I saw said $1.7 billion industry, and it's going up from there in incredible, at an incredible rate. So, it's very important for parents to understand that. And and just to say another word to parents, boy, I'm in real trouble on time because I've got two more sermons to preach after this one. <laughs> um, another problem for parents is with with or your grandchildren, you know, with your children, they have... Children that they go to school with, perhaps, who are going through some transition. I'm not judging the parent who often is, feels stuck and, and, and sometimes even pressured, and they don't know what to do, and they're, they're distressed, but the child's going through that. What do you tell your children? There, I think it's pretty easy. You tell them that God made us boys and made us girls, and that's a good thing, but some people are confused about that. And when they are, we need to always be kind to them. We need to always be kind and respectful. You know, and and kids can get that. Kids can manage that. So when it comes to gender dysphoria, this is part of life in the fall. Remember, the fall affects us both spiritually, but it also affects the whole created order, including our bodies. What is the cause of gender dysphoria? We don't know. It's related to the body. It's related to the spirit. It's related to who knows what. Who knows what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It is one of those things, one of those those difficult things things that we do our best in compassion and mercy to help with. We don't jump on board and celebrate it as some kind of great and wonderful thing. It is not. It is not. In fact, well, I've got to move on. I've got to move on. Sermon three is going to have to really be shorter than I intended, and that is the ideological move today that says gender is a spectrum it's not male or female, it's a spectrum. You fall somewhere between male and female. And the way this is done is by separating gender from sex. In other words, it's quite evident that, that when you talk about sex, you're talking about bodies that are structured for procreation and you've got male and you've got female. But if you say gender isn't about that, gender is what you feel, well, then you can have as many genders as you have people with imaginations. In fact, most schools, not most schools, but schools that go down this route typically teach there are eight different genders, but if you go on Facebook, you've got some 50-odd ones to choose from. And it's said on Facebook, this such you can be your authentic self. Now, what we've got going on here is something different than gender dysphoria. What we've got going on here is an ideological move, and it's a move that intends to upend all sexual norms. In a way, you want to just laugh it off because, in part, it's based on such pathetic sexual stereotypes that you think, oh, come on, we didn't get over this 100 years ago? So, like, you know, over here, you've got the masculine person and, you know, masculine men, they like rough and tumble sports, and they like to hunt, and they work with things, machines, mechanics, mathematics. And then over here, you've got your very feminine women, and they like to dance, and they love fashion, and, you know, they're, they're just all about conversation and Talk about feelings. That part's true. No, no. No, No, but here's the spectrum, okay? So the idea is, well, you know, here's a guy who likes to dance, or here's a girl who likes to get in there with vigorous sports. The guy's not completely a guy. He's kind of, you know, he's on this spectrum. Little girl, he's the little guy and girl, you know, same thing with the girl. Oh, how, how dumb is that? (laughs) That is so dumb. Can't we get beyond that? Can't girls be athletes, you know? And if a girl has, you know, a strong muscular build and maybe a strong upper body, you know, that we typically say, oh, yes, well, guys are like that, Do we have to say she's somehow less a woman for that? Give me a break. Give me a break. Same thing across the board. So it's tempting, and if I wasn't already distressed about time, I'd I'd indulge this a little more. It's tempting just dismissing entirely, but there's something deeper going on here. So Eve is in the garden, and the serpent comes to her and says, is it really true God says you can't eat from any of the fruit? And she said, no, 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 it's just from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, and we can't touch it either, seeming to suggest that there's this sense growing in her heart that maybe God is restricting, God is holding back something good. But she says, we can't can't go near that fruit lest we die. And the serpent said, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. Life does not depend on staying within the boundaries God sets. No, no, (laughs) no. God is afraid you're going to be like God. Knowing good and evil. But well, she's already like God. So is Adam, created in the image of God, created to be God's representative in the earth. But no, you're gonna be like God in a whole different way. To know good and evil is a Hebrew way of talking about comprehensive knowledge. You know everything from good to evil and everything in between. And, and it's associated in Eve's mind with wisdom because when she eats the fruit, it's because she says it'll give me wisdom. It's this God-like knowledge. But it's not just knowing everything. It's knowing everything and giving it its proper place. It's good, it's bad, right and wrong. To be God is to... Establish your own boundaries, your own rules, your own sense of right and wrong. What is flourishing? What is is proper for human beings? Well, if you are like God, knowing good and evil, you can decide for yourself. And to miss out on that, to miss out on that is to miss so much. So Eve, wanting the wisdom she eats and gives to Adam and he eats and unleashed in the world is sin. Now, in a way, this whole idea about gender spectrum, you know, it's all in a spectrum, that leads to the strangest combinations. I'll just say it. You've got men in beards wearing dresses and red lipstick. You've got every imaginable combination. What it is, is an insistence that the boundaries don't apply, that gender can be detached from my sex, that that it is all socially constructed, it's all arbitrary. And I have every right to follow my own inclinations, and everyone else does as well. It's part of that radical pseudo-authenticity that says, in order to be an authentic, fulfilled person, you have to just give vent to whatever you feel and whatever you think and live life your way. That's the courageous way. That's the good way. But no, actually, that's not. That's not. True authenticity is to find who God created you to be and to live that out. That's authenticity. So there is, a, with this ideological aspect, I'm separating it from the gender dysphoria. I realize they can touch each other in various ways, but, but this ideological move, there's, there's a deep spiritual root, and it is a power move. It really is. It is an assertive one. That's what the pronouns are all about. I can be who I want, and you're going to acknowledge it. And so that, folks, is absolutely incompatible with Christianity. The fact is, the fact is, there is male and female in terms of sex, also gender, you cannot separate the two. There are lots of gender roles that are arbitrary, and, and those, those don't have to be imposed on everyone, but but no. This idea that it's a spectrum is simply false. My final sermon. I'm already a minute and a half over. It's this, that God blessed humanity in the beginning. God created us male and female in his image, and the Bible says he blessed them. Blessing. God's blessing in the Old Testament is is the conferring of power that enables you to fulfill God's purpose for your life. God's blessing causes you to come alive. It brings with it wholeness and well-being that the Bible calls shalom. It's not perfectly experienced in this life, we await the establishment of God's kingdom in the age to come. But you can taste of it now, God's good blessing. And the blessing is found by surrendering our life to him. So many times we don't know how to to walk in his way or we find it hard to do it, we we battle within ourselves. That's why we need a savior, and that's why God sent a savior, that we can be forgiven, brought within the sphere of his blessing, and under his favor, we can become, step by step, the people he desires us to be. That's God's intent. That's his desire for us. And we find an infinite number of ways, it seems, to run away from that, to deny it, to avoid it, thinking there's something better and there is nothing better. Nothing better than the way of God. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior, you can, you can today. He will forgive you. He will change you from the inside out. And I'd love to talk with you about that. When this service is over, I'll be in the front. I'd be glad to speak with you, to pray with you. Your life can change. Your life, your life needs to change. It's what God wants for us. My favorite passage in the Bible, I think, is from number six. Are you familiar with God's blessing? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face to you and give you shalom, peace. That's my prayer for all of us. You pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you With all our hearts, we thank you for your loving grace. We go astray in so many ways. There's not a single person in this room who can deny it, Lord. We all fall short. But dear God, you have been so good to us. You have been so patient with us. Lord, there are so many ways we find ourselves lost. But Lord, you know, truth is really only one way. We turn our backs on you. Bring us back to yourself, heal us of our soul sickness. Help us, God, to trust in your grace and help us to be gracious with others who don't see things yet as we see them. Lead us, Lord. Lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.